We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I'd like to have you turn your Bible to the book called Zephaniah. If you find Habakkuk, then you just go a little bit farther and you get to Zephaniah. If you get to Haggai, Zechariah, you're a little too far. So you want to go back to Zephaniah. It's just three short chapters in your Bible. I've been asked to speak at the kind of last minute. We'll say last last 60 days, uh, which is short notice for a conference of this sort, but I've been asked to speak at the Salem Bible Church Conference. They had a speaker who um, was unable to come, and so they called me a couple, well, a few weeks ago now and asked if I would step in and substitute, so I said, okay, I'll do that, and uh, we put some, I put some topics out there as suggestions, and they selected that they would like to hear an introduction to the minor prophets. And so that, 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 might, that might suggest uh, something of eccentric tastes on their part, or it might suggest that the other subjects that I suggested to them were only more eccentric, so <laughs> I don't know which it is. Um, so anyway, they wanted to hear some about that. And I have done some work in the Minor Prophets. Some of them I haven't treated entirely, some I have. Uh, I looked through all of my notes and I collected everything that I have on them so I could put them in kind of one package for the church family. Actually, several churches are going to be getting together in early November for this conference. I think we, we've mentioned the conference too before. I've been there several times in the past years <clears throat> and uh, either speaking or just participating by uh, listening and, uh, and uh, fellowshipping with the folks there. But I, had, I found that I really hadn't done a whole lot of work in Haggai I had a message on Haggai, which is really just kind of an outline and the text of it um, and a, a chronological kind of notes about it. And, uh, and even worse than that, I hadn't done anything in Zephaniah except my Bible outline. Uh, I have done an outline for all the texts, all the books of Scripture, uh, which is available to you if you're interested in that. But uh, so I said, you know what, I'm going to read through Zephaniah a little bit and try to put together a message kind of like I did for Hosea. It's not done, but such as it is, we jump in uh, this morning and, and look at Zephaniah. Let's look at verse number one of the prophet Zephaniah. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, one of the first things that you notice about Zephaniah is that he comes from uh, quite a line of people, and we've, we've got uh, four of them, four predecessors here listed, Cushi, Gedaliah, Amariah, and Hezekiah. Which Hezekiah do you think we're talking about? <laughs> the well-known Hezekiah. And so we have here a prophet introduced, by the, uh, introduced to the word of the Lord 
who was of the regal or royal line. And as far as I know, as far as I know, besides like David, who himself was a prophet, and something like Solomon, this would be the only minor prophet, perhaps in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the only major prophet, too, who is a descendant of a king. Um, maybe check me out on that. But uh, Zephaniah, it says, prophesied during the... Uh, so he was a great, great grandson of King Hezekiah. And uh, he prophesied in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Anybody remember anything about Josiah? What's a key fact of, about him? Very young when he became king at first. He was eight years old. Followed the Lord, more or less. It took him a little while to get up to speed, as it would any eight-year-old. <laughs> You're all laughing. <laughs> you understand. Yeah, he had some help uh, from the priests, uh, from the priesthood, the high priests and all. But yeah, so he actually reigned between 640 and 609 B.C. Um, more precisely, we can place his ministry, that is Zephaniah's ministry, um, in the early part of Josiah's reign. Because who came before Josiah? Do you remember? Tough to remember that, isn't it? Well, there were, what's that? Ammon was before him, and he had a short reign. And who was before Ammon? Manasseh, and he had a long reign. And Manasseh was, well, he was a problem. Not a good king. Long, long reign. And so what we believe is that Zephaniah, because he's laying out a lot of the problems in the nation of Judah, of 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 is not of Israel, the northern kingdom, but of the southern kingdom, Judah primarily, Benjamin, Jerusalem, that he prophesied in the early part of Josiah's reign before things got straightened out. Because remember, there was a reform under Josiah the king. So, uh, you know, this was before, probably before, remember what they found in the temple? Oh, they found the book of the law. Oops. You just lost the most important thing that you have uh, for a long time, and they found that, and that's in 2 Kings 22. Why don't we turn there just briefly because it gives us a little insight into the man, uh, the king who is reigning at this time, 2 Kings 22. You're familiar with some of this, or all of it perhaps, but in chapter 1 it says that Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Only till he was 39. Too bad. Could have used him longer probably. Uh, then you have his mother's name. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not, did not turn aside to the right hand to the left. And so uh, they were working on the temple, gave money to the workers to do the work down through verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. No accounting needed to be made because they were trustworthy. Uh, verse 8, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So Shaphan, verse 9, the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, have delivered to the hand of those who do the work, uh, who oversee the house of the Lord. And then, almost like you know, point two or almost secondary, then Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. 
it's almost as if this guy is clueless, like what this book is. Like, found this book, and it's like old, you know, it's cool, something like that. What in the world is he, you know, where are their heads at? So this tells you about the condition of the nation, which after the reign of Manasseh, I can't remember how many years that was, 40 or 52 years or 55, 55 years. That's a long time. You know what happens in 55 years, right? Uh, what has happened since 1968 in our country? Oh, <laughs> you see, things can get pretty bad in a short amount of time. <clears throat> so uh, they found this book. Now it happened when the king heard, sorry, and Shaphan read it before the king, that's verse 10. When it happened that the king heard the words of the book of the law, verse 11, he tore his clothes. Now let me back up and say this. So Josiah was eight, but when these events occurred, it says it was in the 18th year of King Josiah. So do the math, 26. He's in his mid-20s, he's old enough to, you know, have his, his game together, so to speak, got his wits about him, hopefully, and he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, the Hikim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah the servant of the king, saying, go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord as aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of the book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So this is like a revelation to Josiah. Why should it be a revelation to Josiah when the king was commanded to write out a copy of the law and read it from it every day of his life? Remember that in Deuteronomy? Yeah, one of my go-to passages to remind us that as kings and priests, we ought to be reading God's word and paying attention to it quite faithfully, like God required the leaders of his nation to do. So uh, we have a good response here from the leader. Now, the leader isn't necessarily the one who did all this bad stuff, but he's responsible to get it right again. So the uh, Hilkiah and all those guys went to Huldah the prophetess, verse 14, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, the keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelled in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. Then she said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Now, he probably read in Leviticus, probably read in Deuteronomy 28, where they have the blessings and the curses all of that stuff, and he's like, hmm, let me compare those conditions to our conditions. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Because they have forsaken me, verse 17 says, and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse and tore your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. 
and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring upon this place. And so they brought back word to the king. So after that, it says that Josiah in chapter 23 gathered the elders. Uh, he confronted them with this, made a covenant with the, before the Lord with them. Uh, they commanded to get all, all the articles of Baal that were in the temple and so on. You can read on verse 20, uh, chapter 23 and see his reforms. So probably... Uh, Zephaniah was prophesying before, just before or around this time in, uh, in Judah and in Jerusalem. So we suppose that Zephaniah prophesied in the earlier portion of this time period I mentioned before, 640 to 609, but probably 640 to 620, okay, so in that early period of time. We mentioned already that uh, Zechariah, or Zephaniah rather, was a prophet with royal lineage, um, after having the, the, the people having suffered under the leadership of Manasseh and Ammon, probably Zephaniah was alive during those latter years of their reigns, uh, of Manasseh's reign and Ammon's, perhaps the whole thing. The nation was plunged into sin and idolatry. And so God was already set, okay? There is going to be judgment. But it was forestalled in a human sense, forestalled by Josiah's tender heart. Uh, in the kind of applicational sense, I just wonder if we could muster up enough of a tender heart, we corporately, not just church-wide, but nationwide, if God might extend a period of mercy to us. We need that. We need to turn to him. We'll talk about that more later today. In the broader picture of world history, um, what was happening at this time was power was shifting away from the Assyrian Empire. Assyrian Empire was to the north and to the east uh, in, in, uh, of Israel, and the power was shifting from them to what great nation? You remember? Babylon. Nabopolassar was ruling in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was underneath him. And uh, under Nebuchadnezzar's rule by 605 B.C., Assyria is totally demolished. Um, and some years before that, there were victories of, of uh, Babylon over Assyria and over Assyria and Egypt together. And so Nebuchadnezzar followed uh, Nabopolassar to the throne and uh, began to reign around 605 B.C. And that's when uh, Daniel was taken to uh, Babylon captive. And then the successive raids, as it were, of Nebuchadnezzar on Jerusalem in 605, uh, 597, 587. Finally, Jerusalem is destroyed. And so, but we're, this, this stuff in Zephaniah happened a little bit before that. He's prophesying disaster is going to come. And shortly, disaster did come within, oh, uh, a generation or two. Uh, well, starting within a generation to, uh, to the people of Israel in the southern kingdom. The themes in Zephaniah include the day of the Lord. There's a question, a big question about whether there's a far, a near and a far day of the Lord fulfillment. Uh, we'll maybe look at that, maybe not get to that this morning, but we'll see. Um, and so let me share with you just a brief outline. We have the introduction, that's just verse 1, which you've already read. Then we have a judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, most of chapter 1. Um, 
And by chapter 2, God is calling the nation to repentance, telling them to seek the Lord. God then talks about his judgment on the nations, and he lists a number of nations around Israel in the rest of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he gives some more charges against Israel and then talks about future judgment and blessing at the end of chapter 3. And that really rounds out the, the content of the, uh, of the prophecy. So just look at uh, the first part with me in chapter 1. Ju- uh, Judah is, uh, con- uh, meant, is called to judgment here and called to repent. Look at verse 1, or 2 rather. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of the Baal, or Baal, the false lord, false god, from this place, the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. See that? Those are worshiping the stars, constellations, all that stuff, astrology. Those who worship and swear oaths, listen to this, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom, or Malcam, Milcom. What is that? What's going on there in verse number five at the end? What you have there is you have what's called syncretism. You have the worship of God, supposedly, alongside or merged with the worship of this false god, Milcom. And God doesn't accept any of it. No, it's not the same. Malcam is the other way it's pronounced or spelled sometimes. But it might as well be, it's an Ammonite god. But it it might as well be Chemosh or Molech or Baal or fill in the blank with any, any idol that they would have uh, you know, they're sacrificing to the queen of heaven, uh, to the sun, the moon, and the stars, and whatever, you could fill in the blank and it would be all the same. What they're doing is they're combining the worship of God with the worship of these idols, and in so doing, they're not worshiping God at all. That's, that's syncretism which God doesn't accept. God is exclusive because there is only one God and one Lord Jesus Christ and no other gods. Other gods, let's just get this straight in our minds, are either pure figments of people's imagination or demons. And likely, the figments of the imaginations come from demonic activity. That's what demons are. That's what false gods are. They're no gods at all. They're just pretenders, deceivers. Uh, Another way to lead people astray from the true God. Um, So there is judgment coming. And uh, on their syncretism and all their false worship. Verse 6 Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of Him. There was no um, idea of freedom of religion in Israel. You know that. Freedom of religion is a compromise to allow us to have a peaceful existence with people who have different faiths. But it was not a thing in the nation of Israel. It was against the law to worship other gods 
or in other ways. Verse 7, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. And it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children all and all such who are as clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold. That seems to be some kind of um, pagan ritual, leaping over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, a wailing from the second quarter. Remember the second quarter where Huldah the prophetess was? And a loud crashing from the hills. Wail, you inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. All those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Listen, um, what, what, is, what are they saying when it says the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil? If you don't do good and you don't do evil, what do you do? Exactly. This God's going to do nothing. God is nothing. God is irrelevant. <laughs> They're saying that. God says, well, we'll see about that. Um, but let, me, let me just, well, let me read 13. Therefore, their goods shall become booty and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. This is the, the kind of paradigmatic way in the Old Testament of saying God's curse is going to be upon you. You do all this work, you're going to get none of the fruit of it. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. I happened upon an article yesterday just thinking of this right now to illustrate there's a fellow who's 46 or 47 years old. He's a multimillionaire, kind of one of these gurus, uh, tech guys or something that has money. And he is on the um, quest to live forever. And he's got all kinds of, he takes 115 different pills and he does all this crazy stuff to try to stay alive. And I'm just like, what a fool. One day your life is going to be required of you. And what will all these things mean? What will all these things mean? There is, one, there is one way to live well forever, and that is to get right with God. You know, it's much easier than taking all those pills, I would say. Just believe. But again, it's harder because people don't want to depend on someone else for their rescue. Um, now, I think what it seems to me that God is talking about a judgment that's coming in the near term here. Okay, this stuff is going to happen. You people need to listen. You people that have been sinning and 
sacrificing to Milcom or whatever false idols you have and ignoring the Lord or saying he's nothing and all of that. And so there's going to be a near-term judgment. And that was when Nebuchadnezzar came in 605 to 587 B.C., that 18-year period of great devastation upon the nation of Israel, Judah particularly. This, the northern kingdom has already been deported uh, in 722 B.C., so over 100 years before all of that. But that's not the end of the story of God's judgment. We could say there's a future re uh, revision or future addition of this judgment in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Do you remember what the Bible says there in 2 Peter 3.10 about what's going to happen to the earth and all the things that are in it? But the day of the Lord, this is 2 Peter 3.10, will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Another judgment is coming that will dissolve the elements and put our current residence out of existence. As sure as you're here sitting today in these chairs or watching online, it's going to happen. Just that sure. And if you're not even sure that you're here, well, I don't know what to do for you. <laughs> uh, we're not that much of a believer in skepticism. You know, like, I think, so therefore I might be. I don't know. Anyway, we'll, go, we'll do the philosophy later. But uh, the Bible says here that um, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. And although we understand that to refer to the near term of Zephaniah's people, we do connect it with this long-term judgment that God has promised in the final day of the Lord. And the Bible says that all of this stuff is going to be destroyed, and yet we live today as if that's not going to happen. Many carry on as if how we live does not matter to God, that God is not watching, that God does not exist, that God does not care, that God is incapable of doing anything good or evil, or that he's incapable of doing anything at all. They make a covenant with death, so to speak, thinking either that they will cheat death like this entrepreneur that wants to live forever or that they think they'll make an agreement with death that it won't hurt them when it comes. You know, how, how so? Atheists do this all the time. This is their little covenant in their mind with death. When I die, I am no more. I'm just like nothing. Like I was before I was born, zero. No feelings, no existence, no consciousness, no awareness, nothing. So for them, they've made a covenant with death in their mind. They don't have to deal with it. We just die like everything else, die like the animals, and I'm done. No accountability for nothing. But that's not at all true, is it? Sometimes we who know God get sidetracked and materialism seduces us, and our minds deceive us, and we put more and more resources, energy and time and money into things that are going to burn up. Peter asks the question that I ask again right now in verse number 11 of 2 Peter chapter 3, since all of this is going to dissolve, 
What manner of persons ought we to be? What kind, what sort of person should we be like if this is going to be the case? If God is going to come in judgment? If the world's syncretism is going to be condemned? If the world is not seeking the Lord, which it's not, and the day of the Lord is at hand, and wealth is not going to help anyone in the midst of judgment, what kind of people should we be? Should we be focused on the material or should we be focused on something else? Well, important question. So Zephaniah calls the people to repentance. Look at this. And we're going to see a, a kind of almost uncanny connection between Zephaniah and our character in our next message this morning in uh, Luke's gospel. You'll see it when we get there. Listen to what he, uh, Zephaniah says, though. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus taught? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's the kind of meek person that the Lord is talking to. And so Zephaniah is you know, re reproducing, repeating the word of the Lord and calling the people to really repent, to seek the Lord, to turn to him and uh, come to uh, a place of rest, of, of protection. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so it may be that you'll be hidden. What does that mean? Well, that means that you're, in this time period, God may set you aside and protect you from the physical disaster that's coming. Okay, If... We apply this to ourselves if we are in Christ, then he will, not may, he will hide us in the day of the Lord's anger. We believe from the physical anger of the tribulation, if that comes within our lifetime, he'll rapture us just before that. But certainly he'll rescue us from the fiery tribulation that shall come upon those that don't believe in eternal judgment, most certainly. Not a maybe that in that case, but a certainly but we don't know. We may, face, we may face difficulties, physical difficulties. If persecution breaks out here, if a cultural revolution blossoms and turns the United States into a China, then what happens to us? You know, what happens to anybody who upholds that sign on the wall there? They take that down and throw it out and burn the building to the ground and throw the pastors into prison and all of that. Who knows? I pray that not the case, of course, but it could happen. Stranger things have happened in world history, haven't they? Yeah. Rome was overrun. Cultural revolutions, you know, Bolshevik re revolution. All kinds of things have happened in the world. And in relatively short time, too, sometimes. Well, Zephaniah continues, and he talks about judgment on the various nations. Let me just kind of skip and jump through these just to get a little more coverage here on the text. 
Look at verse number uh, 4 of chapter 2. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. What are those cities? What people group live in those cities? Somebody remember? Philistines, yeah. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. Now I'm just thinking it's bothering me. What's the fifth city? Weren't there five commonly known cities? What's the other one? Gath, yeah. That's good, Ann, very good. Yeah, that's good. All right, now I feel better. I'm not bothered that I can't remember that fifth one. Um, so, woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. So there they are, Philistines. The seacoast will be pastures and so on. Um, so God gives judgment uh, on Philistia. Philistia, we could say generally to the west, to the south. Uh, you see the judgment, verse 8, on Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon. Okay, that would be uh, to the east. Verse, uh, let's see, verse number 12. Very short little section here. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. There's to the south. Verse 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, which was going to happen shortly. If this was written from 640 to 620 B.C., by 611 or so, uh, Assyria is just decimated, certainly by Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power. It's, uh, it's gone as a power in the world off the scene. Uh, so Assyria will be destroyed. Nineveh, a desolation. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, uh, overrun earlier on, and then the Assyrians regrouped at another city, uh, but then they were defeated as well there sometime later. Um, so we have those judgments on the nations, Ethiopia, Assyria, Nineveh, Philistia, Moab, and so on. Chapter 3. Woe to her who is, a, sorry, who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Okay. How's, in, how's that any different than us today? Woe to the oppressing nation who disobeys the voice of God, has not received correction, who has not trusted in the Lord, has not drawn near to her God. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Judges are evening wolves. Listen to this. Every kind of element of leadership in the nation is corrupt. Okay, The princes, the judges, the prophets, verse number 4, the priests, verse number 4, isn't it like today? The kings, the governors, the judges, the attorneys general, corrupt, 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 corrupt. Yeah. The Lord, verse 5, however, is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails. But the unjust knows no shame. Isn't that true? I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Now, just one of the important things about Bible studies, try to connect little sections of it together. Notice what God is saying here in verse 6. 
I have cut off the nations. I've totally devastated them. And even though you knew that, despite everything, they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. Israel, can't you see that God has judged this nation to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, and you still want to go the same way that they have gone? Why do you do that? So the extent of evil was surprising, sort of surprising even to God after all that he had showed to them. So God then promises that there will be a future judgment and a future restoration of the nation. And let me just deal with this one more quick point, verse number 9 of chapter 3, because this gets people turned around. God is going to pour out his wrath, and then, verse 9, I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord. How many a Hebrew teacher has used that to say, see, I told you Hebrew was the right language. That's the pure lip. (laughs) Now, what it really means here is not that there's going to be a superior language that will take over the world. What it means is that God is going to restore pureness of speech into the people's mouths. And why is that going to happen? Where does the speech come from? To hearken back again to our series with parenting children, the heart is where the speech comes from. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if he's going to restore pure speech to them, what does that mean he's going to do? He's going to regenerate the heart. This is a passage that talks about a mass regeneration, a mass salvation of people. We know from Romans 11, God will save Bunches and bunches of people in the nation of Israel. He will restore to the peoples, the nations, a pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. For beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offerings. So it's a wonderful thing God is promising here that there are going to be people who were calling on Milcom. They were calling on Chemosh and Baal and all of those false gods, Molech, but he's going to restore to them a pure lip, a pure language. When you have pure language, you don't call on false gods. You don't do oppression, things of that nature. So that is what the pure language uh, refers to. Well, that's a little bit about Zephaniah. We've got to stop now. We're out of time, so let's pray. Lord, thank you for the uh, privilege of looking at your word today. Uh, would you help us to... Uh, kind of integrated into our understanding of the text of Scripture. And may we be those who are the ones who seek you while you may be found and uh, perhaps are hidden in the day of your wrath on this earth. And certainly we have the confidence that we will be hidden from your wrath in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.